How should organizations deal with the insider threat? Can you stop the insider before they cause harm? What are the red flags to look for? This week on the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast, we place the spotlight on the insider threat. I'm Anna Delaney, editor at TICE, and this week I chat with Lisa Forte, expert speaker on cybercrime, intelligence, and online footprints. Lisa is the founder of Red Goat Cybersecurity, which offers social engineering training, penetration testing, and vulnerability assessments. However, she began her career in maritime security before moving into counterterrorism intelligence, and then later into one of the UK police cybercrime units, where she got to know the attackers' mindsets and methodologies well. She's also a bit of a legend in the tech world, winning the Top 100 Women in Tech Award last year. I thought it'd be great to talk to Lisa about the insider threat, seeing as she's recently conducted some research on the topic and shared some of her findings on the episode, which are fascinating. But first, let's go back to basics. What's an insider threat? And what are the different types to watch for? Over to Lisa. The insider threat is, is a really complicated um, threat to think about. And typically, I think the information security community has sort of missed the point a little bit with insider threat. Because if you look at the, um, the scientific research into these kinds of issues, typically they split into two different categories, which I've sort of um, put forward. So we've got unintentional insiders. Um, so these are people who maybe by accident um, do something, click on a link. They don't have any intent to cause harm to the company. And then you have intentional insiders. So these might include people like whistleblowers or people who act with malice. But the essential thing about it is that they are acting with intent to cause harm to the company. And, and you've recently done some research on the topic. Can you tell me about what you were investigating and any findings that you found significant? So our, our research focused on um, intentional insiders and we were looking predominantly at why it is that um, when you have an insider threat incident, when you look at the famous ones that have happened, why is it that all the rest of the staff stay quiet, the incident happens, and then suddenly there's a huge uh, rush of people reporting that they've seen all sorts of things that were odd about that individual. Um, and so our research primarily looked into why is it that people aren't reporting? What is that main um, thing that's holding them back? Um, and we actually found that, uh, interestingly, uh, in almost all cases, people would not report certain categories of people at all. Yet contractors, they were actually really happy to report anything suspicious that a contractor did within the company. So we were seeing that actually senior people, for instance, could do almost anything and would not be reported. Whereas a contractor who merely looked perhaps a little withdrawn was immediately reported to security. So what's that about fear? Um, I think it's partially about fear, but I think also inside a company we have a sort of code of civility that we, you know, we're, we're taught from a young age like you don't tell on your friends. Um, and I think that's sort of ingrained in our culture. And we view our company and our staff that we work with as our tribe sort of thing. And contractors aren't part of that tribe. And so we're much more uh, willing to report them because that we're not reporting on one of our own. Were there any findings from the research that particularly surprised you? Yeah, um, 
funnily enough, um, there were certain categories of people who, um, who didn't surprise me. So, for example, um, they were more willing to report contractors and they were more willing um, to report uh, new members of staff, which didn't hugely surprise me. Um, but then the third category of people who they were more willing to report was friends, which really, really surprised me. Um, and when we reviewed the qualitative data, it suggested that the reason for this was they felt like they were intervening and helping their friend who was going through a hard time, and they could justify reporting them off the basis that actually, in the long term, this was for their benefit. Um, but that really blew me away, that suddenly we were seeing this data that they were reporting their friends, which sort of alarmed me, but um, yeah. And do any stories stick in your mind? There were some pretty alarming stories that people were really um, keen to, to sort of uh, share with us, including um, one instance, which was a law firm, where this uh, individual, so it was all anonymous, we have no idea who this individual was, reported that she, uh, when one of her bosses was leaving the firm, he took all the client files home with him, um, which he said he was going home to shred because this shredder in his office was broken. And she said, I, I thought about it and I thought it was suspicious, but I thought if I report him when he's leaving, my career's going to be over. So I stayed, so I stayed quiet. Um, and lo and behold, one of their biggest clients uh, switched firms shortly after this gentleman left. So... Um, I think it was uh, slightly suspicious, to say the least, that he was taking all these files home with him. There's that fear, my career will be over. Does that actually happen? Are careers ruined because they've reported someone? Um, I, think it, I think it can happen, certainly. And I think um, certainly in the UK we have quite a hierarchical structure to our companies. And I think people, um, even the perception that, you know, if I report somebody and whether I'm right or wrong, I'm going to be sort of have a black mark against my name um, so I won't be promoted that's sufficient um, but you know and, and I saw in the police you know I saw many times where people reported um, behavior that may or may not have been true um, and they had a bit of a terrible time of it afterwards so I think it does happen unfortunately. So what makes an insider malicious? You know are there telltale signs are there red flags that we should um, watch out for? So I think the first thing to note is that it's not like you're going to wake up uh, one morning and suddenly decide that you're going to destroy the organisation you work for. What you have to understand is this is a process that happens. It's not, it's not a one-off instance that you just wake up and realise that that's what you want to do today. So in that sense, there are definitely telltale signs. Scientific research has told us that when we're looking at you know, what sort of profile of person is likely to be a whistleblower, for instance, that typically that person is likely to be highly intelligent um, and um, they often have an, a slightly narcissistic personality. Um, but, but apart from that, there's not really any one profile for somebody. But there'll always be red flags. I mean, if you look at even the Edward Snowden case, for instance, which was obviously one of the most high-profile insider cases we've, we've had, um, in that situation, a few days after he had left with all the data, um, loads of his colleagues were coming forward and producing evidence of all sorts of things that they'd noticed he was doing that they thought were odd, but at the time didn't report. Um, and so it's all well and good after the incident coming forward with evidence, but you already know that he's taken that data. So it's about trying to get that moved forward 
so that it doesn't have to happen in the first place. But you mentioned the shredder instance. Yeah. Um, so taking files out of the office, but also I hear that long hours, working long hours, working odd hours, might be signs that somebody's up to something. Yeah, and you know all these things we call counterproductive workplace behaviours. These are things that you don't want from your employees or don't usually see from your employees. Um, and so one of the other ones that, that will occur 100% of the cases with Insider Threat is that their productivity will go down because you can't possibly be stealing data and doing the work you're supposed to be doing without an impact on your productivity. So things like that um, are often noticed, but a lot of the cases that I've worked on have involved people using their mobile phones to photograph data on a screen and then taking it home and sending it out. Um, and I think that's part of the problem we've got with a digitalized society. Back in the old days when everything was written, it's really hard to copy data without being noticed. Now, you copy it in a second, you have very miniature devices that you can copy it onto and hide pretty much anywhere. It becomes a lot easier. And what are some of the intentions, the motivation behind these attacks? So as I said before, you've got sort of two main categories. We've got the unintentional insider. So these people will be people who act, act completely accidentally, um, or they might be negligent, or they might be reckless, but they don't have any intent to cause harm. Um, in the intentional insider category, you can have people like whistleblowers, um, sabotage, malice, people leaving the organisation is a really big one. Um, even in our research, we found the number of people who were saying, well, I've never encountered insider threat, but you know, I have taken some of the projects I've worked on when I've left the employer, um, believing um, that they part owned that report and you don't own that report. Your employer owns that report. Um, and so these people also come under that same category. So it's a very broad um, category of individuals, which is why I think companies really struggle um, to sort of create an insider threat program. I've also worked on cases where people have been contacted on Facebook, um, befriended, and uh, sort of ultimately told, you know, that your company's doing something hugely immoral and you can stop it and become a whistleblower um, and have been convinced to steal data to, you know, for the moral good of humanity or whatever. Um, and then it's transpired that that's an utter load of rubbish. And actually there was a competitor trying to get uh, information on R&D in this company. So, you know, it, the games can get rather dirty. <laughs> And what about the emotional impact on an, on an organisation, the employees, to find out that one of their closest colleagues has been doing something with nefarious intent? They've all been conned in a way. Like, what's the emotional impact? I think it's huge. I think obviously that the one of the main victims, the obvious victim, is the company, but the human impact of these sorts of things is is phenomenal. Um, for example, a case I worked on was a, a dentist company and the woman who owned the, the practice um, had been befriended online um, and uh, had this relationship with this gentleman who she believed to be legitimate and uh, one thing led to another and uh, he eventually compromised the, the dental practice and stole a load of money and all the records, destroyed the servers um, and the company effectively couldn't sort of survive after that and we actually had to section her because of the mental damage that the realization that she'd been conned and lost everything as a result of it had actually caused. So, 
you know, I think there's very, very real human impact here. What about the unlikely insiders? You know, I'm thinking devices, our phones, who knows, they could be hacked, they could have spyware on them. Um, even like the cleaning services teams who might come in very early in the morning, see all sorts of interesting passwords on our desk. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, the, the, it's sort of a tale as old as time, really. Um, for example, initially with the, uh, you'll remember with the Stuxnet attack um, in Iran, they thought that the Americans and the Israelis had actually managed to get a cleaner into the facility. And that's how they initially thought it had got it in. Um, it transpires that actually the way that they got in was um, by uh, essentially compromising um, one of the uh, company that did the IT updates, one of their devices, so that when they went to go and do the update, they transmitted the virus. But, you know, I think cleaners are, are a difficult one because they're not usually vetted. It's the same as security guards. Lots of companies employ firms to do it for them. You don't have control of the vetting of those individuals. Um, and I think, you know, vetting is, it's not something you can do once. It's something that has to happen. You know, people's lives change very dramatically. So um, I totally think, you know, if you wanted to go and, uh, for example, I mean, I, I do penetration testing. Cleaner is one of my favourite personas. So, I mean, that probably tells you all you need to know. That's interesting. So how do you find that people interact with you? I find that if, it depends on what I'm dressed up as, to be perfectly honest. Um, as a cleaner, I find that they tend to take no notice of me whatsoever. However long I'm loitering anywhere, they'll just ignore me completely. Um, and I think because I'm a short, blonde woman, people just don't think that there's any malice or criminality going on at all. So I'm tend, they tend to just let me in everywhere. Um, which I guess, you know, if any criminals are listening, then short blonde <laughs> women, that's the way to go. <laughs> and what about the devices? I know I've heard stories about smart TVs in conference rooms and you know, they can pick up all sorts of things, but other devices that seem quite uh, innocuous, picking up things they shouldn't? Yeah, I mean, the old sort of police story is when you're having sort of sensitive meetings, you put your phone in the microwave. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, if you want it really secure, you turn the microwave on for 20 seconds. Um, so I think we have got to start being a bit aware of what could be listening in, um, especially, you know, when people travel as much as they do. Not all the countries we travel to are necessarily friendly to British interests. Um, and, you know, certain companies might attract more attention than others. So, you know, I was always taught um, when I worked in counterterrorism intelligence and then the police, you know, certain countries in the world, you take burner devices, so you're not bringing back a device that could potentially have been compromised. Um, I think that's something we've got to start becoming a bit paranoid about. How often do you come across businesses with good internal processes for dealing with the insider threat? I think the problem is companies think their processes are much better than they are. Um, my research shows that people are not reporting. If you think you've got a process and everyone's going to be happy reporting, um, I think you're sort of in denial a little bit, to be honest, because that's not what my research says. That's not what a lot of the other scientific research says about human behavior. Um, and I think, you know, it, having an insider threat program is completely manageable, but you've got to understand where the problems are with people intervening and reporting things and then address those in a methodical manner as opposed to just thinking, okay, well, I've got this piece of software or they've done this training because as we know you know it's got to be a combination of training 
technical, policy, you know, it's a whole mix of things. When you meet companies, how seriously do they take the insider threat versus the external threats? So most of my companies, uh, most of my clients, sorry, are sort of FTSE 100 companies that tend to take it pretty seriously. Um, certainly um, in the finance sector, you know, sort of insider trading, insider fraud, things like that have been quite a hot topic for them for a number of years. Um, I think the legal sector and maritime sector are starting to realise that it's, you know, potentially a very, very big problem. Um, and the other sector I do a lot of work in is the space industry. Um, and I think they're starting to have a few panic attacks about the insider threat issue because of the consequences of, you know, infiltrating satellite systems would be, you know, huge and attract very sophisticated um, actors, shall we say. Has that anything happened so far? Um, there's been, funnily enough, in our report, we had a few uh, confessions of uh, activity that I suspect was probably from foreign interference, um, where people were approached with very large quantities of money to allow temporary access into um, communication satellites. I think if, with, if, you're, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, there's no way that happens, I, th I think that's uh, very naive, to be perfectly honest, because you know, if there's one place that you really want to be sitting, it's in the middle midpoint of the communication. So I'm thinking of people taking note of their employees. At what point do we say, well, this, this reminds us of Stasi state, and there's this sort of quite macabre aspect to it, where we're, we're watching one another, we're reporting um, any suspicious activity. How does that make you feel about where we're going as, as a society? I 100% agree. I think, you know, this is the problem with security generally, that, you know, security doesn't uh, sort of work counter to this desire to have this open, approachable company uh, attitude. And, you know, I, I think there is a midpoint between sort of extreme paranoia on one level and completely open um, on the other. Um, we've just got to find that midpoint. But I think, you know, we've had it a little bit too free for too long. And I think, you know, the balance has to be struck. And what's your advice to organisations in dealing with the insider threat? Um, I think one of the first things is to make sure your staff feel confident that they know what behaviours they're meant to be looking for and what those behaviours mean. Because one thing that I've discovered is that um, a lot of the time people say, well, I don't know if that means that he's having marital problems or if he's, you know, thinking about compromising the company, how do I, you know, know what am I supposed to report and what do I sort of leave and think, okay, well, you know, if it gets worse, I'll, I'll consider reporting. So I think also sort of rewarding reporting um, and, and also providing an anonymous way to report so that we feel like, well, actually, this isn't going to come back on me. Um, because I think we've seen, you know, across the board, when you make reporting anonymous, you see an increase in reporting. So I think you know companies need to start thinking about a way of doing that. What about privilege access? I mean, how good are companies at monitoring that access point? Um, I think terrible um, would be one way of describing a lot of people. Um, some companies do it really well. I think it, it really depends because some companies, I think the big problem is that HR see people moving jobs in the company that then doesn't get communicated to the security team who monitor their privileges. So someone moves from job A to job B and then job C and they've still got all the privileges from their last two roles so they're actually now becoming quite a privileged user on the network. Um, 
So I think, you know, having that communication between HR and security is, is really, really crucial to set up because without it, security can't possibly know who's moved jobs. And I, I presume that HR is more up to date with who's disgruntled, you know, who, where the problems are. I think the, the, two, the two areas have been kept quite separate. I think this is part of the problem with cybersecurity. It's seen as a separate issue that the organisation deals with, as opposed to something that's part and parcel of every part of the operation of the company. Um, and so I think HR, you know, having more knowledge about information security in, in their own team, but then also working more closely with the security team um, is really positive, certainly for inside threat, because ultimately you're going to come up against employment law as soon as you take something you know, seriously or start down a disciplinary course of action, which will require HR. So there needs to be an understanding between the two, uh, two sections. Thanks to Lisa. Excellent to have her on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. That's all for this week. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at TISS, T-E-I-S-S, with any ideas, comments or questions that you may have. For now, it's bye from us. Join us next time for more Cyber Conversations.